Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Randstands. Just before we get started, quick shout out to Alyssa Minkin, the host of the Joma podcast. Shout out to her because she introduced me to our guest today. Thank you so much for continuing the discussion in the WhatsApp group. The link is in the show notes. If you aren't in the group, make sure to join. I would like to make a disclaimer for this episode because there is some talk around suicide and other triggering topics. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. I want to acknowledge that it can be overwhelming to see a backlog of 200 episodes. So perhaps scroll down through the titles, choose which ones sound interesting to you and maybe ask for recommendations. For those who don't know, I am a podcast success coach. I help people, companies launch podcasts and grow them, monetize them. So I'm here for all your podcasting needs. Feel free to reach out, refer me to your friends. And we are a part of jewishcoffeehouse.com. So this is a network of multiple Jewish podcasts. So if you enjoyed this show, you'll probably enjoy the other shows on jewishcoffeehouse.com. The link is also in the show notes. One more exciting thing. I have joined Around Robin for the next seven weeks to promote other Jewish podcasts by women. And today I am featuring the Happy Birthway podcast with Hani Finger. I have followed her work and listened to some of her episodes, and I highly recommend it. She's also a fan of this show. The links are in the show notes. And here's the promo. I'm Khani, a labor and delivery nurse that has been taking care of new moms and babies for over eight years. I created the Happy Birthway podcast because through my work, I saw how powerful knowledge is. Informed mothers are more confident when it comes to making decisions about their care. They're less anxious. They feel more positive and empowered, even when their birth doesn't turn out how they expected. The Happy Birthway podcast is a space where myths are dispelled, experts drop their wisdom, mothers tell their birth stories, and we explore Judaism influence on these experiences. Episodes feature a spectrum of views on birth from highly medicalized to super holistic. And since they say it's good for your health, I make sure you get lots of laughs. If you believe that a healthy mother and baby is only the bare minimum, that mothers should also walk away happy and empowered from their births, then tune in weekly to take yours to the next level. Without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome, friends. Dance back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have CP Handler, and I do not want to give anything away by making any introductions, so we're going to jump right in. Welcome, CP. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's so great to have you, and I'm so happy we were introduced. Can you remind me who introduced us? Alyssa Minkin. I forgot the name of her podcast, but I know the she Joma some- podcast. Yes, the Joma yes. podcast. Yes, Thanks. and she connected us. Thank you for that refresher because I have no idea how you appeared in my inbox and now you totally reminded me. So CP, tell us a little bit about yourself and about the very unique work that you do. Sure. I'm a trauma therapist by trade. I have my master's in social work that I received about a little over 12 years ago. I spent the majority of the last decade working inside juvenile prisons and in the inner city world in general. So that looks like drug rehabs, in-home therapy, like in the projects and in those apartment buildings, that inside the schools, in the courtrooms, working with kids on probation, parole. And then five of the years was actually 
exclusively inside a facility. One was a state juvenile prison and the other was a detention center for the county. And where is that? That was in Cleveland, Ohio. So I'm based in Florida now. I still am in close contact with several of the kids who are now grown men in Ohio, but they call me while they're doing their time now or send me something called JPays, which is like a prison email. Before we go deep into this, tell us how a from girl in Ohio gets into this type of work. Million dollar question, right? My first job out of grad school, I was in an in-home therapist and also working in schools in the inner city of Cleveland. So like in the neighborhoods that people don't drive through, those were my homes. Like I loved going there. I loved working with the community. I love the families. And I realized probably about a month or two into the job that my favorite referrals were the aggressive teenage boys, the ones who were getting suspended or expelled for fighting, the ones who were in house arrest or probation from the court system. Those were the ones that I got really excited about and that I loved working with. And then I took a step below that and kind of thought, well, why are these the ones that are becoming my passion? And I realized that I love, love trauma work. And so often, some might actually argue always, aggression is a manifestation of unresolved trauma. And if you can target the trauma, then the aggression goes away. So I never did anger management ever. Sometimes I laugh and things aren't funny. It's just like what happens when you work where I work. But one of my clients once failed his anger management programming because he broke a keyboard in the middle of his group. I'm like, right, like that's not going to work. Like you can't give somebody who has such unresolved trauma skills, like counting to 10 when he's like assaulting people, knocking them out, you know? So then I was like, okay, well, where's the best place to find aggressive teenage boys? And the answer was naturally prison. So I went to prison. So hold on. How old were you at this point? And were you married? Oh, my goodness. I was so young. No, I'm still single. I wasn't married. No, I was young. I got my master's when I was 20. I was 21 years old doing this job. And I was 22 when I worked in the prison for the first time. And you're from from birth. Tell us a little bit about your family background and were they okay with you going to neighborhoods, into these people's houses, and then eventually going to prisons, juvenile prisons? I could see you do this professionally because you ask such good questions. You're like right to the point. I'm like, these are very, very good questions. I want to hear the juvie stories and how you help them, but I'm saving that. I just need to get, I need to get some of the Contents. ABCs out of the way. Yes. I love the question. No, I love you. You're such good questions. Thank you. I'm one of nine. I grew up in Detroit. I have six brothers and two sisters. I'm kind of right in the middle, five older, three younger. Religiously, what's your background? I guess people would say yeshivish, which is funny. Like all my brothers now, I have six brothers. They're all still learning, ages like 26 to 40. Or like in Chinuch, like teaching in Israel or things like that. Went to an all-girls Orthodox school. But my parents are Bali Tshuva, and they're very like grounded. I know that sometimes when people grow up with parents as FFBs or as Bali Chuba, the parents will kind of find some extreme uh, like lifestyle choices and then project that on their kids. My parents weren't really like that. So I have to give them credit for that. I always say, I always, always say that one of the reasons that I think all nine of us always stayed religious and have like a huge passion for God and Judaism is because there was just so much love for the Torah in our home. I don't remember ever growing up with like fear of like doing something wrong, everything was just like a teachable moment or a love or my parents just loved Hashem so much. I always say that. So grew up like with that kind of background, you know, and I realized at a young age that I wanted to go into social work. But at that point, I was 15, I think, and I was already kind of doing my own thing. 
So I was a boarder in Cleveland. That's how I ended up in Cleveland. I left Detroit at 14. Just Which is common, right? Not for girls. All okay. my brothers left for high school. So in my family, it felt kind of normal. But my two sisters stayed there for high school. I was 15 and 33. So this is like 20 years ago. Back in the day, people who were like outspoken or engaged in critical thinking were not welcomed in the Bisakov system. I'm going to pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> Are they still welcome? <laughs> I, I don't say, know I if hope. anything has changed. I hope, I hope, I hope things have changed. I know. The stories I hear nowadays, sometimes I'm like, how is that still happening? That happened 20 years ago to me. How is that still happening? Like what? Oh, I was just talking to my friend's daughter. I like get like heart palpitations when I think about these things. And she was saying how people will see her in the street, the way she's dressed, and then take a picture and send it to the principal and say, this is how your kids are dressed. And then the principal or other administrator will tell her, like, people are sending me pictures. I cannot fix my face. So that type of thing. Okay. So I was like an outspoken person, a critical thinker. I had a bunch of brothers, like wasn't interested in like doing things that I thought were stupid or lame. Like my skirts are too long. I'm like, I don't know where, like, what is happening? You can't even like dignify that with a question. So I was like, I'm not staying in this system. So I left and my parents were very supportive. They saw that I was unhappy and they saw that my, one of my greatest strengths is my critical thinking. And they saw that was just being like totally stepped on and they didn't want that to happen. So I already left at that point. I was already like, when I realized I want to go into social work, I was already had kind of left the traditional steps that people go through, go to high school, go to seminary, get married, that type. When I decided that I wanted to work my first job, which is what you asked, like in the inner city homes, my siblings, I think kind of just like chalked me up to an anomaly when I was a kid. I think anything I do, they'll just be like, yeah, it's Hanaparo. That's what they call me. So I don't think that they really had a strong opinion. And my parents raise us to trust us. Like they really, really trust us. They trust that they gave us the skills to make safe choices. And they were never micromanagers at all. And my mom was like a little worried. I like laughed because I remember when I told her that I had gotten the prison job. This is in the summer 2012. I remember I was driving to New York and I called her after I had just gotten the call. And she said, oh, good. You'll be so much safer. <laughs> right. It's true. It is true. She was completely correct. I was safer. Right. I can't remember anything in my life that I did that my family was like, what are you doing? Because it was always just like I had my own journey and they were supportive of that. That's so beautiful. So now let's talk about the work that you do. And was it a culture shock? Is it exciting? And then we'll go into the personal stories. I think that's going to show the crazy impact that you're able to have in your patients' lives. Yeah. It sounds like you liked a little danger and you liked the extreme going to the trauma part of people's lives. Yeah. And addressing that. So going to the core. It was good the way it ended up happening because uh, when I started in the inner city world, I did not understand. Like, it's a different language. They joke about Ebonics, but it really is a different language. People say words that mean something in the suburbs and something else in the inner city. For example. For example, a minute. So a minute in the suburbs is 60 seconds, like where I grew up. A minute in the, the inner city or in like the hood culture is a period of time. So when I remember, this is how I learned, like I have so many things of like how I learned what things mean because I just always asked. So I was going to see a client, a 16-year-old boy. I went into his projects and I was waiting for his mom and she wasn't home. So I called her because we had a scheduled session. And she's like, oh, I'm a minute away. You know, I'm a nice white Jewish girl. I'm like, okay, she'll be here in a minute. That's perfect. She was not there in a minute. Right. 
So I'm like waiting and I'm like hanging out with my client and I was talking to him. And then it was like a long time, like I think probably an hour. I called her back and I was like, what is going on? Like, is everything okay? And she's like, I told you I was a minute away. I'm stuck in traffic. So then I hung up and I asked my client, I said, what does a minute mean? And then he's like, oh, she's not about to be here for a minute. We might have to reschedule. And that's when I learned like what a minute means. So there are just so many words like that. You know, I laugh because I listened to the rap songs. Like I, I got into rap music. I walked in there only listening to country music just for context. <laughs> and now like all the hood rappers, the ones that are not even on the radio, like that hood, like those are my favorite artists now. But I know what they, I know everything they're saying. Most people hear the references and have no idea what they're saying. I understand all their words. So like what, by the time I walked into prison, I had a context of the culture, at least. I didn't have a context of prison culture at all. That is like a beast that nobody should ever, ever know about or be exposed to. Like, that's a whole different thing. But the inner city world, I knew. So I understood their language. I understood like the family dynamics, understood the loyalty piece. I was one of the only white people in the city. I was working in two schools. This is my second year because I worked in there for two years in the school system. And I worked in two schools. They each had about 400 something kids. One had no white kids at all, none. And one had one white kid who was adopted. So anywhere I went in the city, it's a very small city. It's called East Cleveland. It's like two square miles, maybe. Everybody knew me because I was like the white lady who was helping the kids. And they protected me. Like, like the neighbors would make sure I got to my car safely. Like that type of thing. So those little cultural things I had already had an appreciation for and understanding of by the time I walked in to the prison system. So while it was still a total and complete shock to see what's actually happening inside, at least culturally, I was already familiar with it. So now that we know that the prison is safer, what's happening inside? It is not safer. Let's just make that clear. My mom thought it was safer based on what like you would think because there's guards, but turns out the guards are the dangerous people there. So it is not safer at all. Thanks for the frame of reference. It's really bad. Did you have any life risk or life endangered moments throughout your work where you were scared for your life or safety? That's a great question. So those are two very different questions, by the way. I was in a lot of like life endangering moments, but I was not scared for my safety, just to clarify. So no, I do not know you. <laughs> you have to explain that. I was giving you options. I get it. I get it. I appreciate because it. Because I don't know. That was helpful. So context. The inmates are the safe ones. And they're kids. Yeah, they were kids. Yeah, Troubled ages kids. 12 to 21. Yeah, troubled kids isn't a nice way to call like a rapist and a murderer. But yeah, it was like severe. But you were saying how the inmates are the good ones. They are so. the good ones. Yeah, yeah. The rapists and the murderers were the good ones. You did not okay. misunderstand me. Okay, keep going. The adults there are extremely, extremely corrupt and abusive. I mean, like horrifyingly, like Anything from like bringing in drugs for kids to having sex with the kids to putting hits out on other kids who they felt like disrespected them. If they were, had like an issue with an inmate, a kid, we call them youth, then they would put money on, on the kid's head. So whoever beat him up, they would pay either with money or drugs. If they beat him up so badly that they caused him bodily injuries and he had to go to the hospital, they'd pay him more. Just to give you context of who the guards were. And the administration, they're pretty horrifying also. I can give you stories. And please do give us stories. But did you report this or feel like you can report this? Who do you report this to? Right. So I saw a meme once that said, as a mandated reporter, who are you calling when the abuser is the government? So in my second job, in the jail job, so just to clarify the difference between prison and jail, 
Jail is where you go when you get arrested and you're waiting for your time like to your sentence. And then if you get sentenced to prison, which is pretty rare, it's usually house arrest, community service, probation or treatment facility. But if all of those were exhausted or the crime was too heinous and you get sentenced to prison, then you do your time in prison. So my first job was in a state prison where we had there were only when I went, there were four by then one closed. So there were three facilities in the whole state of Ohio for juveniles. And my second job was in one of the like 80 something detention centers in the state. It was like the jail, 10 to 10 years of jail. So the good news is when I went to the second job, the kids who were getting sentenced to prison were getting sentenced to the building I had just come from. So I was able to give them all the heads up of like, this is what you have to expect. This is what's going to happen. Do not trust anyone. As soon as you get comfortable, something bad is going to happen. Like I literally had like a little printout that I would go through all of them so that they knew what was going on. And I've lost track of how many kids called me either while they were there or when they got out. Still, I still get emails from kids like the prison JPA system to this day saying, I did not believe you when you were giving me all of these warnings and every single thing you said that I would see there, I saw. I had one kid tell me that in his five days in intake, he saw everything from staff having sex with kids to the drugs, to the corruption, to the beatings in his five days in intake. These kids are like 14, between 14 and 16, usually that are going. Really stupid question, potentially. No, but is that much worse than what's going on in the projects? And I'm sure there are kids who grow up in better environments than others. But what's it like in the projects? So I'm going to address that in a minute. I want to answer your mandated reporter question because I think it's a okay. really important one. So the second job that I went to, now I didn't work for the, the county itself. I worked for a nonprofit agency that had a contract to provide all the mental health services in the jail. So my boss was like a normal supportive clinician. And if or when we saw corruption and abuse, which it made the news all the time, there were riots, there was this, there was that. My staff threw urine on a kid on camera. Like I, I was there that day, like all of these things but still seemed less than the prison that I came from because that was just so insane. But when those things happened, I would call children's services and I would report it. And then more often than not, because they don't want to like take on the juvenile jail system, I would get a, a letter back. I have, I have the physical letters that say, at this point, we have chosen not to investigate your allegation from children's services. You felt safe in the prisons with those guards knowing what oh, they no. do? Oh, no. I, I felt safe because I surrounded myself with the kids. There were times where I would not walk down the hallway by myself. I had to have at least one kid with me because of the officers. I was so, I guess, just fearful of them. Like they were so bad and they hated me so much because they couldn't abuse the kids in front of me because like I would advocate for the kid or I would do something about it. So that's annoying for them. And that's all the, their whole concept of running a shift is power and control, i.e. corruption and abuse. And then I show up. So they hated me. So I couldn't walk around. My tire got slapped while I worked there, actually. Wow. In the parking lot, in the prison parking lot. Mm -hmm. Okay, back to the projects compared to the prison. And I'm a horrible person for asking this, but I'm assuming that these kids aren't coming from the most loving, amazing homes with all the privileges and Absolutely not. Yeah. No, not at all. My, I had one client in two and a half years working in the jail that had a, a two-family home. One. I had hundreds of kids in my dorm. Which means what? Two-family home. Like a mom and a dad. Oh, okay. I, I'm sorry. I meant a two-parent home. So here's the thing with the projects. Your mentors might not be good people, and they might be initiating you into gangs at a very young age, but you, you have this alliance with them, and they have this alliance with you. They're not going to turn on you. So it's weird to say that because, yeah, they'll have you beat somebody up or shoot somebody or kill somebody or beat you up, but in their mind, 
and I understand this because I've been there for so long, they really believe they're protecting you. They really believe they're doing it for your own good. And they're transparent. They'll tell you, like, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. So it's your choice. Whereas in the prison system, nobody is pretending. To, I mean, they might pretend to be your friend, but they're doing things behind your back all the time and using your words against you and your actions against you. And there's absolutely no alliance besides for themselves. So we know like as trauma, you have to have a, like an attachment figure. Obviously, it's deeply disorienting if your attachment figure is telling you to beat somebody up or they're going to beat you up. But there's still that safety and connection. And we call it a trauma bond, like that bond. There's none of that. It is like each kid for themselves in the prison system. There's no even illusion of safety, security, or attachment with an adult. Thank you for exploring that. So speaking back to your safety and life-threatening. There were only a few times, I can think of three in my five years there, that I felt unsafe. Almost for like 20 minutes, and that was it. One was a little longer. I'll get into them in a minute. And then one lasted probably like a week or two. But... I was in unsafe situations like twice when I was working in the jail, the building got shot up while I was in it. But like I wasn't in the line of fire. One time I was right, like I had just walked past it 10 minutes beforehand. But I don't know, like when you're, I didn't even hear the, I didn't even hear the gunshots. I, I mean, I saw them when I walked out, they came straight through. So those are the things like, technically that's like a life-threatening situation to be in a building when it gets shot up. But like, you don't even really notice and it didn't really impact me. And then like, you know, there were riots that I witnessed. I could have gotten punched in the face. Oh, I think I did actually once in that job. Yeah, because I, I ran a lockdown residential unit where, which was non-juvenile justice. It was like the kids got referred from court or stepped down from the hospital because they had severe mental health issues. But in that place, I got punched in the face all the time, like super assaulted. So that, that's why I was thinking like, oh, did it ever happen in prison? But I think it did happen in prison once. But gen- so that's what I'm saying, like those situations. But I really knew that I didn't feel unsafe, even if there were lots of unsafe things happening around me. The one time that I felt a little threatened, but not really, I had shipped a kid out to maximum. So I was a minimum medium dorm. Just to give you a little bit of background, there were three prison systems. There were three prisons in the state level when I worked there. Minimum medium, that was my unit or my building. And then two medium closed which is maximum security in juvenile. In adult, they have minimum, medium, close, max, super max. But in juvenile in Ohio, close is the worst. So we were an open dorm, which meant I had 150 kids or so living in a unit. The jail had separate cells. But in my prison, the first one I worked in, there were like 25 to 30 kids sleeping on bunk beds. So we really can't have like the worst behavioral kids in our building because it's really unsafe. However, the administration, who's just as corrupt, if not more corrupt than the officers, They wanted the building to look good for central office in Columbus. So when kids would come out as a close, they got reclassified every three to six months. They would just override it in the system and then keep them in our building. And they would just say really they're a medium. So they changed the close to medium. So we had a building full of closed kids in an open dorm, which is why it was like so crazy and unsafe. So I, once again, was like, oh, no, we're not putting people at risk because you guys are corrupt. So I did my job well. So I documented all the different interventions that I used in order to do something called an RIT, a request for institutional transfer. So when I saw kids were heading in a really unsafe direction, but I knew they would refuse to transfer him to the appropriate facility, I would start doing behavioral contracts and extra family interventions, like if there was a parent to participate by visit or by phone and lots of different systems. I would coordinate with the school and find them a mentor in the building. I would just exhaust every possible intervention. And then I would submit the RIT to central office in Columbus. And they would say, like, of course, this kid has to leave. Like the the social worker exhausted every intervention. So it's called getting shipped. 
So the kids never wanted to get shipped because like the, this is open dorm. It's lower security. It was easier for them to live in. But I told them as soon as they came to my caseload, like either you can get it together or you're going to get shipped. Like I'm not, I'm not the social worker for this. It got to the point that in the intake unit, they had already heard about me. Like you don't want to go and see P's caseload if you want to fight the whole time. Like people had asked me, are you Miss CP? Because they had already heard about me. So this kid I was shipping, I shipped the most kids in one year of any social worker in the state because I did my job. Wasn't that hard. So he was really, really, really mad. And I knew he had like serious impulsivity issues. And I, I was a little concerned that if I would walk outside and I would walk in front of him, his like limbic brain would take over and his neocortex would go offline. In simple terms, like his lid would flip and he would just assault me. So I did wait in my office for like 20 minutes. And I don't remember what happened. Like if he went to the back or I walked out with the kid, but it was so striking to me because I had never felt that fear before. Like I never was scared of the kids. And I, I was there to advocate for them. So like they knew that I was there to help them. And even when I would hold them accountable, because I held them accountable enormously, which is another reason why the staff hated me, because I held them accountable and the kids respected me and they can only get respect by being corrupt. But no, I was never scared of them. And then there were other, other two other incidents. One, there was a gang kit that was put out on me. Could you tell us more about that? <laughs> Haven't had anyone say that on a podcast before on my podcast. So that was a kid. I just heard, I don't know if he died or his twin brother died, but one of them just died. Not, not the one who's, who put the hit out on me. But there was a kid on my unit who he wanted Seroquel. Like it was like all the kids wanted Seroquel. So they wanted to go see the psychiatrist so that they can get Seroquel. Like they would claim they had all these issues and they would want to be put on it. And then they would just get high. And what is that? It's an upper? It's, uh, SS, I think it's an SSRI. I should probably check before I say that. But no, it's not an upper. It's a downer. Okay. So they use it for like severe mood management, depression, maybe some anxiety, like sleep, deep sleep issues. But it's like a, it's a real, I, th I think it's an antipsychotic. doesn't mean you have to have psychosis to use it, but it's a strong medication. So all of our kids had severe PTSD. I, I mean, it, probably in like 2013, maybe 14, I stopped asking them when I was doing their intake, if they ever saw somebody die. And I started asking them how old they were the first time. Because every kid there had witnessed a murder. Like, just to give you context. So some of them were on Seroquel appropriately. But anyhow, this kid really wanted it. And he thought he was like a high-ranking gang leader. He was like 14. This was like 2018. I've been doing this since 2012. I was like, you are like the lamest person I ever met. So nothing about him intimidated me, obviously. And he was like very irritated by that. Like super cranky that I would not refer him to the psychiatrist to get put on Seroquel so we can get high. He was a smart kid. He yet told the two high-ranking gang leaders, the highest-ranking ones in the building, on a different unit, like the older kids, that I had been talking about like gang information. And I had been like, I don't know what he said I was saying. Like I was informing on them, I think he said. Like I was saying like, who's running what? And I did know everything. I always knew everything because the kids were comfortable in front of me. I always knew like who was the highest ranking, what was going to happen, this and that, which is a different conversation because like, what do you, you know if it is about to happen? And do you have a duty to protect? So these kids knew that I knew everything. And I was friends with one of them, like friends, like very close with him. His brother had been in my prison that I worked in, this was in the jail, and his brother died after he got shot. So like he and I bonded over the fact that like we, like I knew his brother and his brother had died and now he was with us. Anyhow, so he was like, his feelings were like hurt and he felt betrayed and he was really, really mad. So I don't remember if he specifically put a hit out on me or was threatening to put a hit out on me, but he was very clear, like, don't come around this unit, don't come around here, watch your back. To the point, like, there were a few times when I walked out of the building and I had to, like, look both ways to make sure there was nobody there waiting for me. But I didn't want to write, up, I wrote him up because I had to, because, like, that's, like, really threatening and unsafe. But there's a, a box in the write-up to check off gang behavior. 
And a different social worker strongly recommended I don't check that off because what will happen is they're going to bring it up to court and then I'm going to have to testify. And I do not want to be the one to testify against the gang. He said threatening statements and like kept it small and like eventually he left me alone. They left me alone. I don't think we ever made up actually. But his other, there were two other kids that were like right under him that were were really, really mad at me. One I ended up being fine with and then the other one was still like, they were like livid, but their feelings were also hurt. And also like they have false pride. They think they're super smooth and they have a great operation. Like everyone talks to me. I know everything that's happening all the time. So that's also why like suddenly they think that, that they're making good decisions or their flunkies are making good decisions by trusting me and suddenly I'm betraying them. So it was like a pride hit also. So that time I really did feel unsafe. For sure. And then, and then the, just the last one was I recommended a kid's release get declined, which I did all the time. I always told them like in the same speech of I'm going to ship you. As soon as they came to my unit, I would tell them, like, you have three options here on my caseload. You cannot change and not fight. I won't ship you, but you'll just never go home. I'm going to keep declining your release. Like, I'm not sending you back to victimize our society again. Or you cannot change and fight and I'll ship you. Or you can change and go home. Like, literally, your destiny is up to you. But don't think you're going to, like, fight and stay here or just not change, do any treatment and go home. None of that's going to happen. So the kids all thought they were smarter than me. You're not all, but a lot of them. And then when their release date, like the release authority would come and I would recommend that they don't go home because I, I told them I was going to recommend that. Then they would sometimes they would get mad. Usually they understood because they had enough respect for me. But this one kid told the officer on his way out, like, I'm going to assault her. And knowing his history and his diagnosis and how totally insane he was as a person, I believed that he was going to. So I told him I wanted him out of my group, off my caseload, off my unit, which they refused to do, of course, because they hated me. And then I contacted, I had one advocate in central office in Columbus, and I just let him know, like, here's my resignation letter. I'm going to be giving it to the superintendent and the deputy today because I'm in a physically unsafe situation and they're not doing anything about it. And he called them and he was, oh, no, you need to listen to what she wants. So they did that day. Can we go into some stories in more in depth of the lives that you have? changed or helped and reached Mm -hmm. so i have this one kid he's such a cool kid you should interview him by the way he would totally come out all my kids would be interviewed by you they're such cool kids i'm obsessed with them (laughs) you should interview them i know your podcast i know i know we can talk about it so he and when i say kids they're all in their mid-20s now somewhere in their lower 20s but like this kid i think is 26 i think he's 26 god i met him he was 16 so he he's great i love him so much he came to me he had a juvie life which means you're there until you're 21 so four and a half year sentence he was 16 when he went there and then he had a four-year syo which is a serious youthful offender sentence. And that can get invoked at any point. So if you get into too many fights, if you have too many issues, you just go straight from prison at 21 to the adult system. But nobody who has an SYO gets out early. You just stay there until you're 21. And then you either you get out because you're 21 or you go to prison. But he had a really, I mean, they all had bad lives, but he had a really bad life. He was there for selling guns and robbing houses. When he was three, He was living in a trailer with his mom and stepdad and he and his brother were playing and his stepdad came home and said, I'm going to go take a shower. And then like they went inside the trailer two hours later and it was flooded with like red water and they like broke into the bathroom and saw that he had killed himself. I forgot if he was two or three. So then his mom came home and he like remembers his mom going in there screaming. He like remembers his mom like dragging the stepdad out of the trailer. So then his mom kind of like moved around with them a little bit. And then when he was about four 
couldn't anymore and told him to pack a bag and she was going to drop him off at his dad's house and he never met like he didn't know who his dad was and he packed a bag of clothes and then went to his dad's house and then mom never came back he remembers thinking like after the week he had to do laundry so his mom must come back because he has no more clean clothes imagine a four-year-old like waiting for their mother so that was it. But the dad didn't want him. So he got bounced around to aunt, cousin, uncle, brother. Eventually, grandfather learned that if he adopts him, then he'll get money from the state. So he became known as the money child. I was like abused, obviously, throughout the process. I know all well, his grandfather died, but I met his grandfather and his brother and his dad when he was with us. So he was really a survivor. My partner, who I shared an office with, used to always say we look at it. He was a white kid. And we looked out at the unit because our, our wall was like glass. We just saw everything. And there's like all the black kids and him. And she used to say like, all these kids think they're tough. And then they think that they can survive in the streets. Like that kid is our survivor. He's the one kid who can really survive. We did enormous amount of work together. It was hard because he like projected his issues with his mom on me. And I was still a very young clinician. I left that job at 25. So I was like a very young clinician. And I did, I always seek guidance when I'm like beyond expertise or experience. So there was a really excellent psychologist there who I would talk to and I would ask her like, what, like he's so, he's mean to me. Like he was, he would like disrupt my group at certain points. When we were getting to like the root root of his trauma and his attachment injury, he was like rejecting me, but like in like an ice cold way. And we had worked together for well over a year at that point, maybe even close to two. And she gave me really good guidance, like to stay neutral or to stay non-reactive, keep your set appointment with him every week. Because like at that point, I was thinking and I was telling her, like, it's a natural consequence for me to not see him. Like, you don't treat somebody like this and then still get seen. Like, that's really how I felt. And but I knew that didn't sound right professionally. So I went to seek guidance and she's like, yeah, that's not like a thing a therapist. So and he's great now. He got out. He ended up he completed high school. Then I hired him to work for me because you can get a job after you have high school. So he was my organizer and he helped me with my groups. And he thrived. He got a job there doing drywall and painting. And everyone wanted to hire him because his work ethic was awesome. He applied for his early release twice, got declined both times because he had an SYO, he's not getting out. But the third time they gave him a court date and he got out. I think he was 19 when he got out. And he had it rough, obviously. He moved in with his brother. They got into a fight. Within like one week or one month, his grandfather died. His girlfriend dumped him. His car got into an accident. It was rough, but he always reached out to me still. And now he's so good. He has a girlfriend. They live together. They have a house. They have a son. I went to go visit them after their baby was born. He just had his one-year-old's birthday party and he FaceTimed me that night. He's like, I wish that my grandpa calls him his dad. He's like, I wish that my dad was here. I wish that you were here, but I wanted to show you everything. And he like FaceTimed me from the party and I know his girlfriend and like, he's great. He's one in like 200. This is not common, but he put in the work. He used me as a resource even when he got out. And they have access to you after they get out or that's just volunteer out of the goodness of your heart that you make yourself available. Yeah, both. So I do a pro bono. I even have on my website, anybody post-incarceration who wants therapy services, I provide pro bono whether I work with them before or not. And that the kids know, how can I reach you when I get out? Just Google me. I'm all over Google. My website, my phone number, my email. My number is my Google voice number. So that's one boundary I usually keep. No matter what, they don't have my personal cell phone. I mean, it's it's a matter of time, but so far I've been able to keep that boundary, but I can still get calls and texts and everything on my Google voice number. It comes straight to my phone. What are some other stories? Maybe, maybe more ordinary. By ordinary, I mean not uber successful, but this is what your work can get someone. Best case scenario in a hard life, going back to a hard life. You're very optimistic, you know? It's cute. 
that's not a thing. Doesn't matter how hard you work with these kids or what effort they put in or how skilled their therapist is or their relationship, they don't make it statistically. And they know that. I had a kid once, he turned 20 with me in prison. And for like three days, he was in the best mood. And he was like a sulky teenager. And I finally asked him like, why are you in such a good mood? He's like, Missy P, you don't understand. I made it to 20. I didn't think I was going to make it past 16. I made it to 20. I made, he kept, I made it to 20. Like they don't make it. So I can give you typical stories, but they'll end up if the kids died or are back in prison or in and out of jail. Or I can give you like the anomaly success stories. And I have like a handful. I have a kid who's, he's been out all since 2015, which is very shocking to never go back. They almost all go back. He has his own tattoo business, which is very cute because we caught him with a jail-made tattoo gun when he was in prison with us. And I was like, you couldn't wait till you got out. He was 15 giving tattoos. Yeah. But now he has his own tattoo business, which is great. He also has a few kids. I have a different kid who works for Amazon. He moved out of Ohio completely and he's like pursuing his rap career. He actually can rap. I mean, he's phenomenal. They all think they could rap. They can't. They're usually terrible which I tell them nicely, or I just like smile and nod. But this kid is like phenomenal. Like I listen to his songs on repeat and then they're just stuck in my head. Like he's super, but he got out and he knew he had to like finish his education and get a job. So he's doing that while he's working on his rap career. But these are not the typical stories, regardless of what kind of relationship you have with them or the effort you put in them, they will die or go back to prison. That is the typical story. The question is just, are they going to still have nightmares in their cell or run gangs or start riots, or are they just going to like be in prison and be okay? That's what a success story looks like in the field that I work in. Thanks for adjusting the expectation. And how do you deal with that kind of bar of success when you're going back to your cushiony, beautiful, privileged? 100%. So that you answered it, really. I'm just smiling because down like taped on the bottom of my laptop is one of the kids who I'm the closest with. I have a picture of him holding his baby. He was 13 and his baby is one one year old picture. His baby is now like nine or 10. But I'm just smiling because I'm I'm seeing them as I look down. It's just like an enormous honor and privilege. One of my passions in life in general are humans and the human fight and resilience and the human struggle and the perseverance. Like I just I love people and admire people from all the nominations. I think we're all exactly the same. We're just doing the best we can with what we have. That's just the human experience. And then I always felt, I mean, I cried and like had nightmares. And every time one of my clients die, it's like very sad. But underneath it all, I always felt just so blessed and so fortunate and just so grateful that these kids let me into their lives and into their hearts. And just so privileged. That's the privilege for me that I'm able to work with these people and work with these children and work with these communities. And they have no reason to trust me, except in the hood, there's an expression, real recognizes real. And then they would always be like, oh yeah, it's a real recognizes real type thing. Like they could see that I have no agenda besides for it to connect with them. Like, I just want to connect with you. That's the only reason, that's the only thing. But rationally and objectively, they have no reason whatsoever to let me in or trust me or turn to me. It's not uncommon for me to get it. There's two or three kids that are in prison now that I'm in touch with the most. There's probably about like 15 that I talk to throughout the year, maybe 20, but that I talk to like weekly, sometimes daily. There's two specifically. And both of them have called me in the past just to give me a heads up. If I don't hear from them, that I should just know that they're in the hole 
because they have to handle some business. What's the hole? Seclusion. It's like confinement. It's called oh. a hole mm-hmm. when they're in solitary confinement. Right. One of them started a riot the next day. And then one of them assaulted someone. This should, both of these calls happened recently, but I've gotten, they've called me over the years several times, but these both just happened recently. But they wanted to like, just let me know. Like that's an honor to be that person in their life that they even have that consideration to be like, oh, see if he's going to worry about me. I'm just going to let her know something's about to go down. So she might not hear from me for a month. Did you have to report that? Or just how do you live with a conscience knowing they're about to do something? Good question. Both of those. I see I'm like getting my defensive stance. It's so cool. Yeah. Like the, I, lo- I love the body. I'm like, I'm a body-oriented therapist. So I just love like seeing how postures take over. The duty to warn is uh, like an ethical obligation. Right. So if, if you know who and if you know when and where. There's also something called informed consent in therapy. Informed consent literally means making sure that the people are informed about what they're going to consent on. So my clients have to know that if they're going to tell me something and I have to report it, ethically, I have to give them informed consent. Like, I'm just giving you a heads up. I'm going to have to report this if you continue talking. So I got very, very good pretty early on in my career of recognizing what I'm going to have to report before they said it and then stopping them and letting them know because that's my obligation as their therapist. It's also like duty to warn and this and that, but these are the real ethical dilemmas. In grad school, they teach you like stupid ones from a textbook. And I'm like, that's not a real ethical dilemma. Do you talk to your supervisor or your colleague? Like, I don't know, be an adult, figure it out. Do you not tell your client you're gonna have to report something and then maybe you can stop something bad from happening, but now they don't trust you at all. And then more bad things will happen and your obligation is to them. Or do you tell them then you can't? So in a nutshell, they're just general with me. They don't give me any information. And even if they did, I can't do anything. Like I one time called one of the prisons that they're in to let them know I think my client might kill themselves. And like, I think two weeks later, meant to help them to check on him. Like they don't care anyhow. So it's not like I'm, if I was working within a system that would do something productive, that might actually be more of a question, but they're not going to do anything at all. So it's not even like anything's going to happen. But what I would do is where I worked, it was a little more tricky because I knew the kids who they were going to assault. I knew when it was going to happen. I knew how it was going to happen. So I would do two things. One is I would remind the kids if you're ever, because they got too comfortable with me sometimes. And I'm like, you can't plan gang violence in my office, man. Like, I know you're listening to music and chilling while I do my notes, but like, I'm hearing you and I will do something about it. They knew that. They always knew if I heard something, I would do something about it. Always. So the first thing was they knew, like, don't let me hear things. But I, I can think of one specific example. It's actually a full story. My client, he was being targeted by a big gang there, like the biggest gang in Cleveland now. It's primarily just an Ohio gang, but now it overtook the, all the prisons in Ohio and it's like the number one gang there. So he was being targeted by them and they wanted him to join because he knew how to fight. And they obviously want more people who know how to fight. And it was always an interesting dichotomy because I knew that I knew the leaders, obviously, and I knew the ones who they were targeting. Like I knew everything. So I always had to be like, it became second nature, just be like natural with what you were hearing things. It was like your third time hearing it from a different vantage point. But he did not want to join at all. And he didn't want to assault this like random poor kid who didn't do anything. So he was sitting in my office, like he was stressed out and didn't know what to do. Ethical dilemma. He's my client and I have to help him make the best choice for him. Like give him the options to help him make the best choice. But also like, what if the best choice for him is just like assault the stupid kid and then get into the gang and they'll leave you alone. We worked it out that he didn't tell me who it was. He just told me when it was supposed to happen. So he's like, it's supposed to happen tomorrow in the school area. He didn't tell me who it was. So I went to the case manager on the union. We pulled out a list of all the kids who were living there at the time. And we went through, I think it was one specific pod, which is a section in the unit. And there were only like 13 kids there out of like the 40 in the unit. 
And we went through each kid and we're like, it's not going to be him because of his affiliations. There's not going to be him. And we figured out which kid they were trying to target. And we kept him back from school that day. And he did like laundry. And which wasn't hard because like random kids stay back every day. So the gang didn't suspect anything. And then the next day, the same thing happened. And we just we kept him back. They liked fighting in the school area because the officers were either like sleeping or not paying attention. So they're able to get more assaults in and more fights in before they got broken up. So they would prefer to fight in the school area. And then I think it was like over the weekend, it was, it was on a Saturday that the gang just got fed up and they didn't have access to him off unit. And they told my client, like, you have to just do it today. So my client did. And he sent them to the hospital. And then it, again, I laugh at things that aren't funny, but I remember when I came in on Sunday, the kid was all stressed out because he was going to be in seclusion just in his own cell for who knows how long after assaulting a kid. I just remember him saying, he's like, I'm going to lose all my social skills and now my social skills are good. Like I remember him saying, he was like concerned. But for me, that was a win because if you can't prevent something, at least you want to push it off. And we pushed off the assault as much as we can. The kid knew that he was going to be getting hit. Anyone who doesn't join gets assaulted. That's how they do stuff. So like he knew, but we were able to keep him safe for a few days. So it was constantly doing stuff like that. I have a couple more questions. One is dress. I'm interested if there's any modifications or anything that goes in your mind when you dress Mm -hmm. to go and see your clients. Yeah, I wore everything a size too big, everything, all my clothes. And to this day, my friends will still, I mean, they respect my decisions, but like my skirts are loose on me. And if it's like the slightest bit fitted, I still won't wear it, even though I'm not working in the prison system anymore. But it was just a sensitivity that I developed. So I just wore looser clothes. That was it. Sometimes I wouldn't wear certain necklaces if I knew that I was going to be going into a day just because they can pull it and yank it. But that wasn't that job. That was the residential job that I ran. I would not walk in with anything that they could use as a weapon. But in the prison system, I didn't have to worry about that. And your hair, you could wear it down? Yeah, I didn't have any issues with that in the prison system. I used to wear like six inch platforms because I wanted to be as tall as the kids because I'm five, six. I'm not sure, but they were like six feet. I'm so tiny and I'm already white and I'm already young and I'm already a female. I'm like, I'm going to be tall. But I always kept a pair of flats right by my desk that I can kick off and throw on if I had to run to a scene. I always had that with me. And I remember one time there was like a huge riot right outside my dorm. And we call it the South Cage, like right outside the kids were outside. And I didn't even have time to put my other shoes on. So I'm like running in these like sections platforms. And I just held the door for everyone running out because I could not be of service or use. And I remember thinking, like, I think I even asked my partner in my office, what should I write on the incident report? They're going to see me on camera doing nothing. Just write that you assisted by holding the door for everyone and ensuring that there's no blockades. And I was like, okay, I have to like figure out how to write this. (laughs) But that's the only other thing I could think of dress-wise. Has your experience changed your views or shifted anything politically? And do you see things differently? in our judicial system slash political environment. Like most from people I know are very consumed by their local taxes and their school districts and all the different things that apply to them in their life because either they don't watch TV or they live far away from the cities and they don't actually know what's happening. So they think about healthcare, they think about taxes, they think about education, they think about the environment. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Your level and your experience just exposes you to one of the worst parts of our society in terms of what's actually happening. And, you know, the government has a lot to do with it. How are you different from most of the people, you know, who live in this part of the world? So I would say two things. One is abortion is is a must. It's what are we doing bringing these kids into the world? I mean, it's like the definition of intergenerational trauma. 
they're coming in and a family that does barely to a human that can't take care of them. Best case scenario, they go to foster care, but that's a terrible case scenario as well. We didn't even touch on foster care today, which I've worked extensively with. And then they either end up as a victim or a perpetrator with a horrible life and they die anyhow. Preventing all of that trauma, both individually and cumulatively, is like a must. So that's one thing. That was a part I was hesitating about. But in terms of prison reform, I mean, it's a disaster. I don't look at it as like reform. I look at it as like overhaul the whole thing. Stop everything that you're doing because we see it's not working because we have the highest rate of imprisonment in the entire world. And while the rest of the world is steadily decreasing, we're steadily increasing or maintaining. Look at the statistics. It's horrifying. And the recidivism rate is disgusting also. So no one is even getting rehabilitated. It's everything about it is terrible. We need a plan for when these people get out. These people meaning like hurt humans who committed crimes and are now doing time in prison. What is the plan? Because you can rehabilitate somebody as much as you want and then send them right back to the stupid freaking environment that caused them to be who they are and then tell them to change. Somebody has to be trauma-informed in the government who's making prison decisions because they're insane. Obviously, in terms of like felons getting a job, like in what world are we expecting them to succeed if they can't get jobs? Like I've had several kids want to go into the mental health field. I even was in touch with the board of social work in Ohio because one of my kids wanted to start college classes in prison and get out and go to school for social work. And like, well, it depends on this and it depends on this. These, these kids are children. Their brain development is doing exactly what somebody in the suburbs is doing, except in the suburbs, they have access to like alcohol in their daddy's car. And in the hood, they have access to guns and drugs. But their decisions are decisions. Their responses to life are exactly the same. Why are we holding an adult accountable for something that he did and he was a child and his brain wasn't developed because of the lack of resources that he had? Clearly, I just got fired up. But it's really horrifying because you work with these people, you see them heal, you see them grow. They are harder workers than anybody I know, myself included, like every single day getting up and making conscious decisions that are the antithesis of what they were raised with and the values used to keep them safe. And they're trying and then they're like thrown back to what created them. It's disgusting, actually. It's like really horrifying. And then people like me try to help and then get abused. Let's touch upon the foster system a little bit. I had like so many kids specifically that I worked with both young, like in elementary school. And then there were several that I worked with in elementary school that years later I saw in jail as my client. So like I saw them at nine and 10 and then I saw them at 15 and 16 in jail. It's bad. It's bad. The foster care system, it's bad. And, and I don't have a solution. They have to be taken away, obviously, for whatever's going on in their home. Parent gets killed. Grandma goes to jail. Aunt is having sex with them. Something bad is happening and they can't be there. And then we don't, we don't have a place to put them. We have foster parents who get paid every day for having a foster kid. But I don't want to say more often than not, because I've worked with some really upstanding, good foster homes over the years, like good people. But really more often than not, they're not equipped at all. They're really not equipped to deal with the traumatized. I mean, most people are not. And then they don't have the resources. And they have these kids in their home who are now, the kids are with other foster kids and they're doing unsafe things with each other and the home is not safe and then the school doesn't even know where the kid is living now and like I had a kid that I worked with and he was 10 and then I saw him again when he was 14 in jail and I had to tell him him and his sister we like had an intervention me leading it in my office this was in my other job before the jail or the prison and I forgot who else was there honestly and we were like yeah your foster family doesn't want you back we're driving you to a new home tonight and then I had to drop them off. They were in my car. I had to drop them off. And like, I listened, I remember on the way home, 
I listened to the song Temporary Home by Carrie Underwood and I just cried. And then, of course, there's like horrifying. Like I have one like absolutely horrific, one of probably the top worst five stories I have in my entire career. That was a foster parent story who ended up adopting a kid. But those are extreme cases, like really, really extreme. Most of the time, they're just ill-equipped. Just heartbreaking chains of events, one after the other. Right. And the kind of social workers are overworked and underpaid and don't have time to do the wellness visit. It's a really bad system. Is the solution to abort all these children? Okay, I'm not putting this on you. No, I know you're a question. So you're not in the prisons or in jail now. What do you do now? Private practice and consulting. And was that primarily for financial reasons, safety reasons? You were emotionally drained? Yeah, I was super burned out. I was so burned out. Can you tell me about that more? I had a target on my back for five years. It's a lot of years to have a target on your back. I had a lot of fight in me for various reasons. I've always been a fighter. Literally, I box like I'm actually a fighter. I taught kids how to box in jail. I would teach them how to box. It was fun. But for various reasons, I didn't get pushed out when I should have. And I know in my two and a half years in the prison, five master level social workers came and quit within 13 months because they were like, oh, no, we have a license to protect. We can't stay here. So after a while, it got to the point where finally the administration and officers realized I don't care about anything except for the kids. That is all I care about. So nothing you do to me, like threatening to call me an AWOL if I take off for a Passover or slashing my tire in the parking lot, real targets on my back. Nothing that you do to me will matter because all I care about is the kids. And then they started targeting the kids that were on my caseload just because they were on my caseload. So that's a new level of burnout when not only are you fighting every day for justice that nobody else seems to care about, but now the people who you're there to advocate for are getting hurt just because they're your people. That's a level of burnout. I couldn't carry that with me. And the kids were all like, no, the time is the we got it. Like we're used to that. And they were used to it. They grew up in bad situations where adults were bad people. They were used to it. Social workers, by definition, are advocates. I can't be an advocate if by being your advocate, you're getting more hurt. Personally, both times I left, it was, I think it was actually more after I left that I was feeling like jaded and numb and all the stuff that kicks in when you're not in survival mode anymore. I don't remember so much. I guess at home, there was some aggravation that was like coming with me because like, it's very, 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 very hard to explain what it's like when adults are hurting kids, but the kids are already hurt. And the adults are supposed to be protecting them. And then you're just there helpless. Something you can't explain. I got burned out and I couldn't do it anymore. Sounds like a really sad story. Isn't that crazy? You had so much fight in you and you were so idealistic. You still are. And it was impossible for you to continue. Everyone was against you. Correct. And you're still the one better off in the story because the kids don't have you now. The new kids. Right. I still get calls and emails sometimes from people who are like, remember how much they hated you? Why did they hate you so much? Like, they'll talk to me about it. And they'll be like, oh, they hated your ass. Like, they'll like be like, you know, like emphatic about it. And that was one of the reasons both times that I, I thought I stayed much longer than I should have. The second time, not as much. Second time I had already learned from experience. I got out before, like I really got trauma. I developed PTSD from it. I had to go to therapy. I had to go to um, EMDR therapy. I'm an EMDR therapist, but I had my own EMDR therapist because I was like, I literally had like trauma symptoms, dissociation, flashbacks, nightmares, numbness. Like I was experiencing debilitating trauma symptoms. I had two panic attacks. After, this is all after. When you're in the survival mode, you're just in the survival mode. But one of the reasons I stayed is because I kept saying, if I'm not here, nobody is. Exactly what you said. Most of the people listening to this are from Orthodox on the spectrum of Jewish 
Is there any message you'd like to share with them specifically? If there's anything you'd like to be able to tell them? Tell us. Yeah. The Torah is perfect. Always. There are infinite, I mean, really infinite amount of things that I saw in my time there that I'm like, oh, the Torah says that. Oh, the Torah says that. Well, the Torah says that's going to happen. I love the Torah so much. But like, no, know that the Torah is perfect, period. Like everything in it is true. And everything that's trying to protect us from is real. I can give you examples if you want. That's my message for the Jewish people out there. Like Hashem knows what's going on. And the Torah is literally designed not to help us survive, but to help us thrive. So if anybody wants to get past survival and into thriving, find a good rub or find a good community or find like a, a way that the Torah speaks to you and live your life with it. And that's beautiful. It comes full circle talking about your rebellious state when you were in high school and how Beisakel mm-hmm. wasn't for you. And then mm-hmm. coming back to Torah is perfect. People may argue on what is considered Torah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think otherwise we've covered it all. Thank you so much, CP, for coming on and talking to us about your You're welcome. extremely unique and sad experiences. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this will be like a continued partnership moving forward. Absolutely. And if anyone wants to reach out to you for private therapy. Well, yeah, Google my name. I'm in private practice now. Well, it's such an honor to get to know you and talk to you. Thank Thank you. you. I am so glad you stuck around until the end. And I hope this episode was worth your time and that you did enjoy it. I would love to hear what you thought, your comments, feedback. Join us in the Francisca discussion group on WhatsApp. The links are in the show notes. I am Francisca. I hope you have a wonderful week.